Hey, you're listening to the Adventures in Advising podcast with Colm Cronin and Matt Markin. Are you passionate about working with students and making a difference in their lives? Then join us as we bring together those in the global academic advising community to share knowledge, best practices, and their own advising stories. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and also follow us on our social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. And as always, keep advising. Hello and welcome to Adventures in Advising with me, Colm Cronin. And hey, greetings and salutations. This is Matt Markin and welcome to episode 21 of Adventures in Advising. We're so excited as always for you to be with us. And we're about a week and a half after the completion of the Nakata virtual conference. And both of us uh, had the privilege of attending that conference. And we have a whole host of interviews to share with you that we're excited about over these next few episodes. And if you attended, we'd love to know what you thought of the conference. Colin, what did you think of the conference? I really enjoyed it, Matt. And we are fortunate that we do have the guests that we speak to to delve into it a little bit more. But I thought the conference committee and the executive office and everyone involved did a really good job. I think I have been to a number of different conferences since lockdown or the restrictions came in and some better than others, but it felt, this really felt like you were part of something. There was that sense of belonging. There was that Nakata community, Nakata family. And I think there were any number of different reasons for that, which we'll probably speak to in in the interviews. But I just thought it worked really well. And I felt I came away with a lot of knowledge and that I still had some of the networking opportunities that exist in the face-to-face conferences. It wasn't the same. But Nakata deliberately didn't seek to make it to to be the same. So yeah, I I, re, I really enjoyed it, and uh, kudos to to everyone involved. You were, um, you know, presenting uh, on a couple of occasions. You had an absolutely fantastic video that you did for the uh, awards ceremony. How was your experience with the conference? Yeah, I think mine was the same. I mean, I, I've this is my second virtual conference that I've attended this year, and I thought it was very well put together. I was nervous how it was going to go, and I thought it went very well. I thought I was going to be super tired just sitting at my laptop watching uh, sessions, but a lot of them were very engaging. Um, a lot of them had Q&A uh, sessions afterwards. There was you know, breakout sessions in some of the sessions. So it was great to still have that networking piece, but like you said, not quite the same, but it was still overall, I thought, a fantastic job um, that they did. But I know we're going to hear about a lot of that in uh, some upcoming interviews that we have for this episode. But of course, I think we have some shout outs, right? Yes, indeed. I want to give a shout out to the 
ACE community at UCLA. That's the Advising Communities of Excellence in Professional Development Program at UCLA. They gave us a shout out on Twitter and just told us to keep up the good work. And I would echo that to them. Definitely, they do some great work there at UCLA. And we have been fortunate to speak to Marion Gabra on the podcast previously. So people can check out that um, interview. But thank you very much for the shout out. And also shout out to Instagram handle Subjective Perspective, who reached out to say very nice work with our podcast. And also to James Falsulo from Portland Community College, if I said your name right. He said he liked what Sean Bridgen talked about regarding thinking across departments and the importance of advisors doing this. And to James, this connects to him learning about various departments at his institution, including learning about financial aid. So thank you, James, for that. And that's very true, right? As advisors, we're always having to learn a little bit about a lot of things. Uh, we're that living encyclopedia or that advisor version of Siri or Alexa. So let's roll right into the interviews. A couple episodes ago, we interviewed Jonathan Halford from Auburn University. It was a brief interview and more to talk about the Nakata Annual Conference going from an in-person conference to a virtual conference and what attendees could expect. Well, now we have him back on the podcast to talk about how the actual conference went, takeaways and highlights from the conference. And it also gave us an opportunity to learn more about Jonathan's advising background and what he does at Auburn University. So here we go. So our next guest is a returning guest, actually, from three episodes ago, episode 18, Adjusting to New Realities, and that is none other than Jonathan Halford. Jonathan has been an academic advisor for 14 years. He currently advises fine arts students in the College of Liberal Arts at Auburn University and teaches the Liberal Art Career Prep course. Prior to advising in liberal arts, he advised in the Honors College and the College of Architecture, Design, and Construction. Jonathan chaired the planning committee for the 2020 Nakata Virtual annual conference is a mentor in the 2020-2022 Emerging Leaders Program and the immediate past chair for the Region 4 Steering Committee. Previously, he has been a region chair, state liaison for Alabama, Region 4 conference co-chair, and served on the planning committee for the 2016 Atlanta Annual Conference. He holds a master's degree in administration of higher education and a specialist degree in adult education, both from Auburn University. He is currently pursuing a PhD in adult education from Auburn. He lives with his wife, Carrie, daughter, Margot, and three rescue dogs, Sullivan, Gypsy, and Newton in Opelika, Alabama. Jonathan, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me back. Yeah, it's great to get the opportunity to talk to you more in depth. I think Matt has outlined some of the stuff that we'll delve into in, in this interview. And obviously, um, you know, huge congrats to you on, on a very successful virtual conference, uh, firstly. And I, I'm sure we'll come back to that a little bit later. You gave us a, a, some insights into your career. Um, and I suppose, especially your journey with like Nakada in our last interview, Jonathan. But for listeners who, you know, mightn't have heard that episode or mightn't be that familiar with you, maybe you could, I suppose, outline how you came to, to be an advisor. Well, that's, um, it's taken me back a little bit, but um, that um, I, I define that as a happy accident. Um, you know, um, I I started out 
like a lot of kids coming out of high school wanting to do something. And uh, at the time, I was planning to go to medical school, and um, uh, chemistry taught me that that was not going to be a possibility. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I kind of ventured in a, a number of different areas and um, um, really had settled in on uh, adult ed was my undergrad degree. I, I, I like training and development. I like the idea of it. And originally the plan was to go into training and development in, in a medical uh, facility, but caught the higher ed bug um, just being involved as an undergrad. Um, I was an orientation leader um, in undergrad. I was in the marching band and a mentor in the marching band and that type of thing. So um, really caught the higher ed bug um, really enjoyed the environment and, and mostly being around students. And, um, you know, they're, to me, they're always fun. And um, so um, right out of undergrad, I, I had the opportunity to be an admissions advisor um, and uh, had a graduate internship um, and was an admissions advisor for basically nine months and, um, and uh, decided that, well, I, I love talking to the students and, um, and, and that type of thing, um, there was no finality. Um, you know, we, I got them here, and then what happened once they're here, very rarely do you ever find out. Um, it, it, I equate it to being kind of like an ER doctor. You know, you get them in, you, you take care of them, and then they're gone, and you might not find out what's going on um, after. But, um, you know, I was looking for a job and, and saw an opportunity and um, truthfully didn't have an idea of what, academic advising was. Um, I'd had academic advising uh, advisors when I was an undergrad, obviously, but, um, you know, never really um, utilized them as resources more than course selection and things like that. So um, had a really good undergraduate advisor um, in my major um, that's actually still, um, still connected to now uh, through my programs, but um, and, and utilized his resources and his expertise. But as far as an, a true professional advisor, I, I didn't. So, um, and I got into that and, and it's just, everything seemed to snowball in the right direction. It just got bigger and bigger. Um, I started out in architecture um, and um, I was like, there's no way they're going to give me this job. I'm not an architect. I can't draw a building. Why on earth would they give it to me? And then I realized, wait a minute, architects want to be architects. Our architecture students want to be architects, not advisors. So, um, and, you know, it really kind of gave me a, a, an insight into what brings people to other jobs and other careers other than and what I want to do. So, um, and Initially, it was, let's get a job on campus, let's get my foot in the door, and let's uh, find something else that might fit better. And I happened to find that this is what fit better. Um, and, and so I've stuck with it. I've moved across campus to other areas and taken other opportunities. But um, in the end, you know, the, the students are just what I expected and what I wanted. And, um, and that experience and, and for careers to help students learn, help them be advocates. Um, I think that we all have, um, a lot of us have stories from our own academic advisors. Um, if you're an academic advisor, you probably think back to those pretty regularly. Um, and I've had good ones and I've had not so good ones. And so, I, but I've taken the opportunity to learn from both. Um, and so, uh, but that's what got me here. And, and everything else is, um, I, I heard it recently, every other opportunity comes along 
Um, you get those opportunities because you say yes. Um, and so, and I just said yes and, and ended up where I am now. Nice. So you're helping students, but then also you're a student yourself as a PhD student. How's that going so far? It's going well. Um, so, um, I've, I've kind of taken a purposely taken a little bit of of a break this, this year. Um, and when I say a little bit of a break, I'm still taking classes, Uh, but, um, have not done anything towards a, a dissertation yet. Uh, but I'm, I'm done with, um, um, required coursework. Uh, I'm per, I'm finishing up some coursework for a certificate. Um, and so hopefully in the spring, I'll be able to um, sit for comps and, and, um, and start the dissertation process uh, going forward. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. Now, in the the last episode, you whetted our appetite for the conference, and we titled the episode Adjusting to New Realities, because that's right. what we were all doing, and especially for NACADA, the first virtual annual conference. Um, I suppose, as the conference chair, what what was your experience uh, of it? Uh, you know, reflections on it. We're we're interested in, in hearing from from you about how the conference was for you. Well, I'll tell you. Uh, you know, I was on the Atlanta committee, and um, um, I didn't get nearly as many steps in this time. <laughs> but um, you know, we were we were very cautiously optimistic going into it. Um, the EO uh, Farah. Turner, uh, Dana McNary, and Michelle Holiday were really kind of the, I mean, they, they all, everyone at the EO played a huge role in, in getting this done. But those three were the, the main ones uh, putting all the pieces together. And, and so they made it really easy for us. Um, but I think we were very cautiously optimistic. We had heard very positive things about the Socio app and how it works. Um, but, uh, you know, at the end of Monday um, with pre-conference day, we didn't have any notable problems. And so I remember going home and my wife said, well, how'd it go? And I said, well, and she said, you sound surprised. I was like, no, I'm not surprised. It's more of a, I'm just waiting for that first thing to fall. And it feels like it's going to be a domino effect. I said, ask me tomorrow and we'll see, you know, how comfortable I am. And so after Tuesday, same thing. And it was just it um, from my point of view, it seemed to go really smoothly. Um, I didn't hear too many problems, too many technical issues. And that was our biggest concern was techn- technology. Uh, and it seemed to go pretty well. Um, we've got a lot of uh, compliments. Uh, and, you know, from one of the things that we as a committee um, set out to do was try to make it as close to an annual conference and the expectations that, that people have for it as we can get in a virtual space. Um, and there are things that you just can't do. 
um, and there are things that you have to tweak. Uh, so one of the things that we did come up with is networking events. Um, and I, I can't remember who said it on our committee, but someone mentioned that networking is very organic. It's continuing a conversation from a, a session and then, hey, me and some people are going to go down and get some lunch. We're going to go get some, we're going to go to the karaoke bar. We're going to go to dinner, whatever it may be. And, um, and would you like to come with us? And that, and that fosters that continued relationship. Um, well, uh, as much as we tried, we, we couldn't figure out a way to have a karaoke bar virtually. Um, so we created those events and we got the one comment that we got was I could do this all day this event could have been so much longer and we we're like, yeah, we, we kind of felt that way too, but we had to draw on some way. So, um, but I think that's one thing that we focused a lot on is, is trying to keep that networking um, and keep that in that component in there because it is such a big part of, of Nakata and, and being um, connected to the profession. Um, uh, I was talking to a student today who's interested in, um, transferring to a different school, not transferring, but going to grad school at a different school. And I said, oh, well, I know somebody there. And she just was blown away that I would know somebody at a school that's not really close to here. Um, so um, she was like, how do you know someone there? And I was like, I know people at a lot of places that I would have never thought of 14 years ago. And, you know, it, at 14 years ago, I thought that it was very much a institution by institution thing. And one thing that Nakata has taught me is that it's very collaborative across multiple spaces. And that was one thing we wanted to make sure we kept going as a virtual conference. That's the scary part, though, like when you're saying like day one, everything pretty much went well. Like you are really waiting for there's something that has to go wrong that we can fix or at least on the back end and for everything to go like as perfect as it did. I mean, I will say like uh, when when it was mentioned that it was going from in-person from Puerto Rico to virtual. Like I had my reservations. I was like, I don't know how this is going to go. Like even as an attendee or as a presenter. And I mean, I thought everything flowed very, very well. I mean, and, and the fact that everything was recorded and even the live sessions recorded and then posted later, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, I was talking to some colleagues and we're like, yeah, you know, in an in-person you know, conference, if there was like three uh, presentations you wanted to go to and they're at the same time, it's like, well, flip a coin, you know, if anything, you got to pick one. And now it's like, well, I can go to one live and then watch the other two later. Yeah. And, and you know, as a planning committee, one of our responsibilities is picking the the times and scheduling mm -hmm. everything, you know, pick it, not, not necessarily picking the times, but picking the, the topics. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and then someone else picks the times, which is, a, I've done that before for a region conference and it's feels like a very daunting task. And I think that given the recorded, versions of things that made that task a little less stressful because like you said if there are three at the same time you you pick your priority and then whichever one you get into that's what you got well now you can go back and watch the others and selfishly as a chair it's it's nice for me because as a chair you, you don't really get to go to sessions um, you're doing other things behind the scenes um, but now I can go out and actually watch sessions and um, and go back and see a presentation that I was interested in um, because you you read the proposals, you read the abstracts and you find the ones that's like, oh, you know, that one sounds really interesting. If I could go, I would go to that one or that one. And um, and so now I get a chance to go back and do that. And so does the rest of my committee. Um, and, and so I think that's something, you know, one of the positives out of doing a virtual conference is 
learning that things like that can be done and be very beneficial to to everyone. Yeah, and I, I think a number of people have commented on that and the fact that they will be able to go back. I'm going to put you on, on the spot a little bit, Jonathan. And I know, okay. obviously, you said that as chair, you don't get to you know necessarily sit on the, on the sessions. But I'm wondering, in terms of your takeaways, and, and they can be from you know the organization of it, but or or any aspect of it, but what are your takeaways from the the virtual conference and, and being the conference chair? Um, I, I think the takeaways for me are that it's hard to say things can't be done, um, especially after experiencing something like this. Um, it's hard to say that you can't do things. Um, it's figuring out another logistical way. It's being flexible. It's, you know, things like that. And, and it's really taught me um, individually as, you know, how you've got to stay away from those comments of we've always done it this way or we've never done it this way. Um, because um, if you if you want to change something, it can be changed. Um, it's going to take time and effort and it's going to and really it's going to take a team effort. Um, it's also kind of made me, um, look at people's strengths a little more, um, and really pick out, be very nitpicky about what people, what people can do, what people's strengths are and let them do it. Um, and, and, um, you know, the nice thing about a committee like, like the one we had this year is that there was a, we had a large committee. It was, that was purposeful when it was in Puerto Rico because we had nobody local on the committee um, when that, that was not the intent we wanted people there. Um, but as, as region four chair, um, we knew that at, at the time when all that started, we didn't have members in Puerto Rico. Um, and we're, we're hoping that that goes up um, obviously um, and that we can offer resources and things like that. Cause there's a lot, a lot going on there that, that I think could benefit from organizations like Nakata being involved. Um but especially with not having any or as many people locally, we we're going to have to divide up tasks and, and really separate it out. So we were able to find people that had served on committees before and find new people um, to bring in new ideas. And so what we did was we paired them up and said, you know, we're going to put an experienced person with a new person and we're going to make a, a committee. And that really worked out well because you had the historical knowledge and you had the new ideas and they really married well together. So, um, you know, try, that really just kind of taught me that being focused on what people can do and not what people can't do um, and giving them, a, you know, the room to do it, you can come up with some really great things. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. 
Yeah, and I thought effectively you did very well with utilizing Zoom and and the breakout rooms, especially for some of those networking options. And and I think for myself, there's when you're in person, there's so many things to do, so many things to choose from, and sometimes you might feel intimidated to actually attend some of those sessions, even if they're smaller breakouts, um, or even it's yoga or something early in the morning. And I found myself going to things in Zoom uh, for this virtual conference that I know I, I probably wouldn't have done it for the in-person. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, there seem to be a lot of, lot of benefits to having the um, in-per or the virtual conference. Now, you know, not that we'll quote you on this, but from a hypothetical standpoint, just your opinion, uh, could you see this format being used for future conferences, such as like at a regional conference, administrator institute, et cetera? Yeah. You know, I, th- I think that, um, given the choice, most people are going to want an in-person, um, um, more traditional conference. Um, there, like you said, there, there are pros and cons to both. There, there are ways of doing one differently than the other, but, um, but yeah, you know, I, I can see the benefits of maybe not being a hundred percent virtual, but, you know, offering a component, um, maybe a hybrid, uh, I don't know any of the insight into that. I don't know where, what the conversations are being held for, for next year. But uh, I feel like this was a really, you know, talking about jumping in the deep end of the ocean, but I mean, a, a test run to, to prove that it can be done, you know, and should a region conference want to do virtual or need to do virtual for some reason, um, you know, or, you know, I know that, there's a lot of costs that go into hosting a conference. Um, some of the biggest um, um, line items in a budget are for internet and technology. Um, and so that, that comes into play. And um, Nakata has always been very good about um, giving you the most bang for your buck and, um, and, and making sure that you get absolutely the most out of a conference without having to break the bank and, um, and especially right now, um, in, in all of, a lot of institutions are having financial difficulties, um, and that's very important. And I know that that's very important to the leadership. So, um, you know, I think that it, it very well could be, it, if not 100% the option that they go with, it's at least on the table now uh, to say, what about this? What about that? Um, and, and, you know, we're, we're moving into a world where, We've seen, um, you know, companies that have started saying, okay, we're just going to have everyone w- work remotely um, mm-hmm. or have the, at least have the option. So the more we see that in outside of academia, um, the more likely it is we're going to start seeing it in. And so, you know, making sure that we can do that and, and be fluid with it, this was a great test and, and it went well. And I think that that just gives us more options for the future. Yeah, and, and what better way to test something than at an annual conference, right. the larger the larger conference, the, the largest one you have. <laughs> like I said, just throw throw you in the deep in the ocean. Well, you are well able to swim, Jonathan, and uh, you're also well able to multitask because alongside being the the conference chair this year, alongside your everyday advising work, alongside being uh, a father. You are also a mentor on the Emerging Leaders Program. 
And so yet another string to your bow, uh, yet another project for, for you to take on. I suppose, what are you most excited about in terms of being a, a mentor on the program? Oh, um, you know, I, I feel like I, when, when I started advising, there was not a formal mentoring program here. Um, and we've, we've um, done it a couple of different ways. Um, but I ended up having a mentor that was very much by accident. Um, it just so happened that um, I asked for help and that conversation continued into something else. And when something else came up, I went back to that person. Um, <clears throat> and so um, I'm, I'm looking forward to the opportunity to kind of share what I was taught um, and, and what, you know, how to go about things because everything up until this point has been very informal. Um, you happen to find the right person. And, and, you know, I was, I was very fortunate. My, um, my first, um, um, chair position for a region conference, I had a co-chair that was an event planner and a region chair that was an event planner. Um, so when it came to the hotel and all that stuff, we handed it off, they did it. And I didn't have to worry about it. I got to do the Nakata stuff, which to me is the fun stuff. And so I was very fortunate and learned a lot from them so that when I did it again, I, I knew what I was talking about and, and could go in there confidently. And so that's kind of what I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing. And, and uh, But also knowing that full well that nobody gets to where they are without someone giving them a push um, and putting them in a situation that maybe they don't think they can do, or maybe it makes them a little uncomfortable, but to, to put them in a position that they don't see themselves being successful at or, or something like that. And knowing as you get to know them, Oh, wait a minute, this is a strength. This is something that, that they can do very well. Um, they just need the the support to do it. And so that support to be, you know, Hey, I'm in over my head. What do I do next? Or just to self brag. I, I think that's one thing that um, a lot of us struggle in is, is giving a self self brag and, um, and, and having that person to go to be like, hey, I, I did something great and I want someone to appreciate it with me, uh, but I really don't want to post it anywhere on social media or something like that. I just need someone to tell me I did a great job. And um, and so things like that, just having that support is, is what I'm excited about. Yeah, And then uh, with EOP, usually the orientation is, you know, in person. This time around, it was it was online. How did that go? I thought I mean. I don't have the knowledge of what what's done before, but I thought it went really well. Um, I think Lee Cunningham and 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 the the steering committee for ELP they really did put their time in to figure out the best way to do it. Um, we had orientation um, Sunday before the conference for about half a day, um, and and I, I remember getting done and going, that flew by. I, like I, I remember going in, like I've got my snacks over here, got my drinks over here, expecting to just be by the end of it being ready to go home. And and I get done, and I'm like, it just flew by. It seemed so seamless. Uh, but one thing that I really liked that they did was, and and I think this could be very beneficial if you know, especially for like a region that wants to do something, was that we kind of did. I hate to call it speed dating because it's not really that, but um, it was more of a um, like you reach out and say, these are the people that I'm interested in having more conversation with, uh, whether it be, you know, 
we have similar personalities or similar interests or they have goals that I've had experiences in, whatever it may be. And they do the same thing. And if you're on the same list, they pair you up and, and you have a conversation. And, you know, it, it it's hard to believe that through a few conversations on Zoom that you can get to know someone um, as well as I felt like I did, because every single person that I spoke with outside of that, I could have seen it being paired up with and it being great. And so um, I think that's a testament to the setup of that program of we're going to ask these very pointed correct questions and you're going to answer them and we're going to move on. And it's very organized. And, um, and I, and I think, again, I think that that just, when I started, I was like, there's no way by the end of these few meetings, I'm going to know who I want to talk to. And then lo and behold, we get there and I have a list and it was easy to come up with it. There was no, um, I didn't feel like I had to stretch to find people and, and it worked and it's worked out. So. I suppose, Jonathan, just kind of building on that, one of the things that might be interesting is the fact that, as I said, you, you really have a lot going on. You have a lot of projects, you have a lot, you have a lot of responsibility and, you know, you have, um, you know, a, a, a wife and a child that you, you know, you've, you've got lots to, to look after but how do you approach you know um, multitasking I mean as somebody who was conference chair who is on the the ELP who who does have the full-time job in terms of it might be interesting for listeners to just hear how you approach that this year well I, I have to give a shout out where it's due I, I have an incredible teammate uh, my, my wife one encourages me to do whatever I want to do and, and supports me in doing it. And two keeps me in check um, with you need to do this or you need to do that. And um, for those that are listening that have met her, they, they will laugh and, and say, uh-huh. Yep. She certainly will. Um, and um, but I, that's a big part of it is having, whether it's a partner or a, a coworker or whoever it may be to find someone who can bring you back to reality. Um, and, um, and someone to step in and say, Hey, uh, we need to practice saying the word no. Um, and, uh, you say it to me and I'll say it back to you. And, and, you know, and I think that's where, you know, colleagues or, or partners or whoever it may be, uh, are a great asset, um, to, to be honest and, and just to, because they, they're already your, your cheerleaders. They're already your champions. They don't have to be a hundred percent positive to you all the time. They can be real. And so that's, that's where I get the the bulk of my support is having, having someone there who just says, Hey idiot, um, you forgot this, you know, you need to go back and try that, try that again. Um, and so, but additionally it's, you know, it's, it's compartmentalizing things. So to, to say, okay, for in this block of time, I'm going to do this and this. Um, and in this block, I'm going to do this. And that works really well until the wheels start falling off. Um, but it's, you know, it, it, that that happens. It happens in everything you plan, something's going to go wrong and you've got to fix it. Um, so it's it's being organized enough to, and what, organize, what organization is, is different for every person. Um, you know, I am not type A, never claim to be. Um, but I know where everything is, um, except for my car keys. Um, never know where my car keys are. Um, but uh, other than that, it's like, okay, I know I have it. It's laid out and it's working this way. Other people, you know, I have people on my committee that are very type A. Um, and, and 
in whether it's my uh, in my steering committee that I had when I was a region chair or this committee or previous committees, they're very type A and they want it a certain way. And, and, and to me, they, they really work hand in hand, you know, they're, they're your checks and balances and you're their go-to when it gets a little hairy. So, um, but that's kind of how I do it. Uh, and there's probably people listening there going, my God, how does he do it that way? And it, it's just finding what works for you and, um, and, and having a, putting a, putting together a good team. And, and, and that's what I feel like I've done and been very fortunate to, to get lucky on is, is to be able to listen to other people and say, this person, you need to look at this person or trusting your instincts. And so the, the funny thing is about going back to the annual conferences. Um, when you look at the, the committee that we put together and the people that, that were on it, I knew less than half of them before we started. And, um, but everybody else came recommended from somebody and, um, somebody reached out and said, Hey, you really need to take a look at this person for your committee. Here are the things that they do well. And then you go, wait a minute, I need that and brought them in. And so, and it's hard to believe now that we didn't know several of them, um, or I didn't know a lot of them before we started this little adventure. (laughs) (laughs) What's nice is like when Nakata members recommend, like you can definitely trust. Right. Um, and speaking of planning, though, there's always that saying that if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Right. Now, if we go back to uh, Auburn, um, you also teach a career prep course. Uh, how long have you been teaching that course? Um, you know, are you currently teaching it? And can you talk more about that class? You know, who's it designed for? Uh, what the students sure. get out of it? Yeah, we, um, it, you know, I have thought about this type of course since I was a student, actually. I remember um, getting ready to graduate and thinking, oh, my God, I don't know what I'm doing. And I thought, you know, we have a first year seminar like most universities, most colleges do of how to be a, be in college, how to get into college, how to be successful. Um, but that's where it stops. And, or at the time, that's where it stopped. Um, and, uh, you know, other things came along and they did things. But liberal arts, where, I, where I'm currently advising, um, didn't have anything structured. Um, we had resources, we had all these different things, and some programs had a, a course or components of a course that, that would help out, especially those that are very specific. Uh, I happen to work with three departments, two of which have those courses um, where they, they kind of build, build in professional practices um, into other courses as they progress. Um, but I've always thought there should be a next step, like how to pr- prepare. So uh, we were very lucky in that this idea started at the top. So we didn't have to convince anybody it was needed. Our dean was very um, in tune to there needs to be something um, and we need to come up with something. And he had the idea of having the advisors teach it uh, because one, it connects us to our students. And two, um, we're the ones that see them the most, Um, you know, even smaller departments, you don't see faculty members every semester. So, um, but it's designed uh, for liberal arts majors. So it's um, it's actually u- utilizing a book. And for the life of me, I can't remember the name of it uh, or, or who wrote it, but um, it's called "You Majored in What." Um, and I think it's a great book. It's it's kind of it's got activities and work projects as as you go through that you can basically read and then apply um, as someone who's more of a 
kinesthetic learner that I like that. I, I don't like the just a hundred percent reading um, as much, uh, but I think that it really speaks to a number of different learning styles and that type of thing. Uh, Catherine Brooks is the author, by the way, uh, I knew it would come to me, uh, but um, so, but it's designed for sophomores. Um, and we, we designed it on purpose that way because and and our thought when we were putting it together was that if you started as a senior, if there's something that's not right, they can't fix it. You know, if they haven't been involved enough or don't have a job or haven't done an internship, the likelihood that they can fix that by the time they graduate is is pretty small. Um, so we thought if we we set it up for sophomores, then we can say, okay, let's look at your resume. There's a lot of white space. How can we fill that white space? What what quality experiences can you get out of it, out of this education and this t- your time here that can fill that up? Um, and we're also looking at reflectively to say, okay, what have you learned? You know, outside of, uh, I'll use psychology as an example, out, outside of developmental psychology and, and the topics that are in that class, what else did you learn in that class that might be transferable to a different job if, you know, there might be a recession or, you know, a loss of job or something like that. Through the chaos theory, how do you, how do you find those little bits that you can apply to a different career or to get a different job um, or to get what you want um, and make yourself marketable? So, um, but we started teaching this class in the fall of 2016 um, and it was put into every single major that liberal arts has as a requirement, unless it already existed in their curriculum. Um, so like theater, for example, one of my majors uh, that I advise, um, they had already built that into a professional practices course. So they did not require it anymore. They didn't have to require it, but others, if they didn't have it, they had to put it on there. Um, and it's interesting because so many times we hear during, during the early parts class, my God, why do, why do I have to do this? I know all this stuff. You know, I shouldn't have to, this is a waste of time, blah, blah, blah. And then by the end of the semester, as we go through everything, those are the same students that come by and say, thank you. I needed this really bad and I didn't know it. And so that those are always kind of the rewarding comments. Um, But I think it's a unique take. Um, We actually presented on it um, in Vegas uh, to have advisors and what that connection is and and how um, the difference, we, we just transitioned uh, two, I say just, it's been two years now, but two years ago, we transitioned into departmental specific advising. Prior to that, we advised based on alphabet. So I had to be at least a little knowledgeable of every, all 45 majors we have. So this change, now we teach the sections for our own students um, so we can use examples that are re- relevant to them and, and give them even more in the class. Jonathan, I know from your social media that you are a big Auburn Tigers fan. And uh, as much as yeah. I would love to discuss uh, the ins and outs of college football, I also noted from your social media, and you made reference to her earlier, but your wife mentioned that you actually met through uh, college football. Could you could you tell us that story? Sure. So um, so my wife is two years younger than I am, um, and uh, it's funny because um, ever since I was little, um, I wanted to be in the marching band. Um, so full on band nerd through and through, own it, 
you know, um, and I remember going to my first Auburn game when I was very little. Um, we, my family lives about 45 minutes from Auburn. Um, so we grew up very close and at halftime, everybody jumped up, ran to the concession stand, not us. I made us all sit and watch the marching band. And so I've had that goal ever since I was little. Um, my wife, uh, decided on to come to Auburn um, in a much different fashion. Um, she wanted a large university with a big football program. Um, and she just happened to find herself in a, um, in a marching band audition. She'd been in marching band. And she said, you know, why not? Um, so our paths collided there. And so uh, without football, there wouldn't have been a marching band and we would have never met. Um, but we, uh, we both, we played in the marching band um, at Auburn. Um, and we were, you know, we still have great friends from, from that people that were in our wedding were from the marching band. And it's kind of funny because I've come full circle and now I advise the music students and very connected to the marching band again. So, but that, yeah, that's, that's where that comes from. But we, um, um, we've, you know, we were, we actually didn't date an undergrad. Uh, we, we, uh, we were very good friends in undergrad and started dating after we graduated but that's just the small community that it is. And there's a lot of similarities between a marching band and organizations like Nakata. And um, you just kind of gravitate and you feel like it's a, a community outside of your normal community or your a family um, and uh, for different reasons. So. Yeah. There's something for everybody or spell <laughs> one for everyone. So um, one of the things with Auburn, though, um, is last November, uh, the Auburn Plainsman posted a, a message um, on their newspaper, Sun article, and it was signed by numerous Auburn employees uh, wishing to express their wholehearted support for LGBTQ students, staff and faculty. And you were one of those that had signed that. Can you talk about what led up to that letter uh, being signed and how things now are at Auburn? Yeah, you know, uh, for me... Um, you know, I've, I've been, I've surrounded myself by people that are different than me, um, as a straight white raised Christian male in the South, it's easy. Um, there, that's what it is. And, um, you know, I look around and I see people who, because they're different than I am they have struggles because of that and people make it difficult because of that. Um, so I've always enjoyed differences. I've always enjoyed learning from others, um, learning, I mean, learning about them, but in a lot of ways learning about yourself. Um, and I, I've always gravitated towards people that are not me. Um, and so, um, I think about, um, you know, my experience at Auburn and um, walking into a classroom and, and the experience that I got and knowing that inevitably you're going to have a difference of opinion in beliefs or, or something. Um, but in reality, a, a lot of times the, the differences that I ran into were difference in philosophy. Um, and we can, uh, we can agree to disagree um, on, on certain things. Um, but when it comes to you, and who you are at the core, that's not a, that's not an agree to disagree. I, I saw a, a meme recently that was like, 
yeah, we can agree to disagree on what food is good, but not racism. Um, and so, um, and that's kind of the same mantra is um, I, I worry about, I worry about students who might walk into a classroom and no telling what they might've had to pass to walk in the, the comments, whether it be in person or on social media um, and you get into a classroom and it should be a, a safe space to have conversations, learn from one another um, and, and that type of thing. And, and to know that that might not be the case is, is hard for me to accept. And so that, I mean, for me, that's, I, I wholeheartedly agree with equity and, and the idea that we should all be treated the same no matter what. And, you know, so it's that, I mean, that's kind of, and I think you, we all hold our, our own institutions where we come from um, and, and where we, assuming that we had a good experience, right? Uh, we hold them in high regard um, and we put them on a pedestal. Um, and and I owe a lot to Auburn. Um, like you said, I would not have met my wife and be married with a child if it weren't for Auburn University. Um, but at the same time, when you hold them on those high uh, pedestals, it's your job to make sure they are seen that way by others. And to think about someone treating one of my students, and, and this is in a different college, um, so it's not my students that are walking in that room, but it just as easily could be. And um, and so, you know, I think about what happens when students walk in here and wanting to make sure that they feel not just um, tolerated, but accepted and welcome is important to me. And I want to make sure that that's the case no matter what room they're walking into. And, and, and so that's, that's why I signed up. But I think that they are, you know, we are um, at a, at a moment in time where, where changes are happening. Um, And just like any change, we want them to happen quicker than they, than, than they do, no matter how quickly they change. But, you know, to Auburn's Testament, one thing that they've done is put together a, a group of um, a, a, it's called the uh, Campus Pride Index, and and so what they're doing is developing a a community that that for LGBTQ students to make sure that they are not only represented, um, that they're being treated fairly um, through um, policy and and things like that, uh, to even things like um, you know making sure that we we provide support for them so that. Uh, that they are are staying and not stopping out and not you know transferring to somewhere else, um, you know. And, and I've had a couple of students that have come in since COVID, and this has nothing to do with LGBTQ. It, it was more of a response to our state's response to the COVID crisis and and you know what's being done. And and I had a couple of students came in and said, I just don't feel safe with the decisions that are being made. And it's not an Auburn thing. It's, it's not a me thing. It's not an Auburn thing. It's a statewide thing. And so they're trying to get out of Alabama, not even Auburn, but out of Alabama, someplace else where they feel safer. Um, and that's troubling to me. Um, and so, um, and of course, you know, you sit there and you're like, yes, let's get you someplace where you're safe, but not everybody has that opportunity. Um, not everyone has the opportunity to just say, okay, I'm going to cut ties here and move. Um, or I'm going to finish out and then move. And, and 
for the two students that I talked to specifically, both of them are close enough to graduate that we can, you know, get them on a fast track and get them in all their classes and let them go where they need to, to feel safe and whatever they need to. But, you know, that doesn't help everyone else. And that doesn't help the, the students that do not have the means to do that. And so, um, you know, I think that this is, while this program is focused on LGBTQ, um, I think that similar programs would could be very beneficial to um, minority students, um, students of different religions, um, students that maybe or don't have means, poor students that might be food insecure, housing insecure, uh, things like that. So, um, you know, that's that's why that I've actually been asked to be. Uh, on that committee and, and a part of one of the committees rather. Um, and I'm actually co- quite proud that I am because I feel like that until you're part of it, it's, you know, now you have the responsibility to make the change that you want to see. And so um, that's what, that's why I was excited to get it. Cause I, I found out about it last year and I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm really interested in doing this. Um, I'm not LGBTQ. I'm, I'm a straight white male from Alabama, but I'm an ally. And, and I want to be part of that change because it's important. And, um, and then I didn't hear anything. And I thought, oh, my God, I scared them off. I was a little too upfront. Uh, but I didn't realize that they weren't. I thought they were a little further along and looking for those requests than, than they were. So, but I was glad to see it come out and, and looking forward to doing that and, and, and being part of that group. Yeah, I think, it, as you said earlier, change doesn't always happen as quickly as we want it to but it's really positive to hear about a program that is looking to implement some change and I think Jonathan what shone through for me in this interview is your care your compassion and your empathy and also your willingness and and desire to elevate others and I think that is a testament to you. I think that's a testament to your leadership. I think it's a great quality um, to, to have in, in any leader that they want to boost up those around them and not just those who are who are similar to them, but those who are different and those who bring different skill sets. So uh, I think that is commendable and um, really thank you for um, the work you did in the conference and for taking the time to, to chat to myself and Matt today. Sure. Thank you. It means it means a lot. I mean, you, when you think about why you do things, you know, you hope that's what's conveyed. And so I appreciate you telling me that it, it means a lot. Really interesting to get the opportunity to speak in depth with Jonathan to find out about really how they put the conference together, the decisions that were made the work that went on behind the scenes even during the conference, but also then to get to discuss his work at Auburn and find out a little bit more about him. And he is doing great work. And we just say kudos again to to you and to the conference committee, Jonathan, on the work you did with putting the virtual conference together. Now, our second interview is somebody that Matt and I have been fortunate to get to know over the last couple of years. And this was an interesting interview, Matt, because uh, for this one, it flipped a little bit. Usually with with our time difference with you in California and, and me in Dublin, we tend to 
interview you when it's nighttime for me and and maybe kind of early afternoon or sometimes early morning for you. But but this was different. Uh, this was done early morning my time because our guest is Mevash Ali and, and Mevash is based um, in the UAE. And I think it's a really great interview. Mevash is always fantastic to chat to and she has um, presented a number of conferences so if you had the opportunity you won't be surprised uh, by the insights that Mevash offers in this interview. All right, next up, we have Mavash Ali, who graduated from the University of Washington with a Bachelor of Science degree in psychology, then received a Master of Arts degree in psychology from NYU, and another Master of Arts degree in clinical psychology from SIUC, followed by a PhD in clinical psychology, also from SIUC. Mavash is the Director of Academic Support Center and First Year Experience at American University of Sharjah in the United Arab Emirates. Mavash is a licensed clinical psychologist and periodically teaches abnormal psychology, biopsychology, and introduction to psychology at the undergraduate level at AUS. Mavash has attended and presented at numerous conferences and is heavily involved in the global academic advising community. Mavash held the International Perspective seat on the Professional Development Committee and helped develop the Nakata Advising Core competencies in that role, was part of the Emerging Leaders Program cohort 2016 to 2018, serves on the International Conference Advisory Board, and launched the Nakata Visiting Advisor Program. Mavash, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're delighted to have the opportunity to talk to you. And Matt has touched on just some of your achievements in your bio. And I know we're going to delve a lot more in depth, but maybe to, to help listeners get to know you a little bit, Mavash, maybe you could talk to us about how you came to, to work in, um, in academia as an advisor, your, your journey, I suppose, a little bit. Okay, well, see, I love the atmosphere of higher education. Like, if somebody would pay me to be a student, I would study for the rest of my life very easily. But working in higher education is the second best thing. Um, I love being around people who are growing and learning. So even when I was a psychologist, uh, I predominantly worked in university counseling centers. Um, in fact, I love higher education so much that um, my wedding was actually held on a college campus in Seattle. Um, that is how passionate I am about higher education. Um, and then, you know, I, working in counseling centers, um, in universities, I was at University of Michigan Counseling Center, University of Washington Counseling Center, um, did a small stint at Ohio State as well. Um, so I just wanted to kind of continue in that capacity. And I was actually on, on uh, maternity leave in California. Um, you know, sitting at home, kind of getting bored and uh, seeing where life can take me. And I started doing some um, searches on Google uh, for jobs and uh, came across a position in the UAE. Um, it wasn't for uh, counseling, but it was for advising. Um, 
but I feel that it was so similar, the requirements and the competencies that were required for the position that I took a shot and I applied. Um, and the person that I interviewed with uh, was actually a University of Washington graduate. Um, and we uh, just clicked and um, he offered me the position and it kind of uh, came about pretty quickly. Uh, we moved to the UAE with the family, a new baby um, and a three-year-old and my husband as well. Uh, quit his job and moved to the UAE. And that was the first time that I got into academic advising. Um, I mean, I was familiar with, uh, you know, student development theory and a lot of the advising theories are derived from psych literature. So I was comfortable with that aspect. Um, but, you know, like the nitty gritty uh, aspects of, psych of uh, advising were very new to me. So um, jumped right in, and that's where Nakata came in to help fill in those gaps. I think I'm still stuck on having the wedding at a college campus. <laughs> I think that's fascinating. Um, but also fascinating is, is kind of your path into advising and kind of just how things kind of fell into place. And, you know, like a, a simple Google search that kind of like sparked the advising. Um, now, you were talking about like your background in psychology and, you know, theories and, you know, you have this, you know, wealth of, of knowledge in psychology. And there was an article that you wrote a couple of years ago called Common Factors, Cultivating the Relational Component of Advising. And in that, you talked about, like, the shared focus of advising theories and how that uh, fosters the advisor-student relationship and how it's similar to, like, the theories in psychology. So can you talk about like, what what would be considered what is the common factors model and how that does apply in academic advising? Sure. Um, so common factors, this idea uh, has been around in psychology for for many, many years. Um, I would say almost a century. Um, I think it came around like in the 1930s uh, when it first emerged. Um the idea behind common factors is that uh, regardless of what theoretical perspective a psychologist holds, so it could be, you know, psychodynamic, it could be uh, interpersonal, integrated, CBT, whatever it is, there are some things that need to be there in order for therapy to be effective. And uh, that includes things like um, empathy. Uh, goal consensus, um, uh, the relationship that you have uh, with your client in psychology. And I think that applies um, so well in academic advising, right? Like, doesn't matter which theoretical perspective an advisor carries, whether it's appreciative advising or developmental advising, doesn't matter. Well, it matters, but... Uh, you still need to have some common underlying factors that need to be there. And the rest of it builds on top of it. Uh, so regardless of the um, particular approach you apply, you need to have a basis of empathy, positive regard. Uh, you need to discuss what the goals are and come to some kind of an agreement with your student that this is what you're going to be working towards. Um, you need to uh, 
um, display a certain level of positive regard uh, with the student. Um, and if those things are not there, the rest of the interventions that you're applying that are derived from your perspective are not going to be effective if that basis is not there. So I feel that the common factors provide that grounding for your theoretical approach and the specific interventions that you're going to apply. And it just goes back to, you know, uh, the relational component uh, of academic advising. I gravitate towards that so strongly uh, because of my background in psychology. I think that is that is the key that is so, so important in order to do effective advising. Yeah, I think there, you know, you can see, you can see that in, in terms of the theory and, and we can see that in, in your practice and, and the way in which you, you build those, uh, those relationships. And I suppose one of the things that, that stands out to me, I've gotten to know you through the Nakata events and you have done so much in Nakata, Mavash, but maybe you could, I suppose, talk to us a little bit about how you first gotten involved in, in Nakata, how, how you, it came across your radar, and, and then we can kind of delve a little bit more into to some of the, the work you have done in Nakata. Absolutely, Colm. So, um, okay, so imagine uh, this is 2012. I have moved from, uh, I was in California at the time, I moved from California to the United Arab Emirates, um, kind of a career switch for me from um, clinical psychology to academic advising. Um, and I'm trying to get this department uh, going. And, um, you know, I'm a strong proponent of uh, continued learning. So again, Google Club comes up and um, I look for uh, professional associations uh, in my field, because even as a psychologist, I was involved with the American Psychological Association. And I think it's so important for professionals to be involved um, in their professional association. So um, I was sitting at my desk and I was like, there has to be an advising professional association. And of course, uh, NACADA is the global community for academic advising. So I came across that. And um, uh, I, you know, lived on their website for a while, filling in the gaps uh, that I, uh, in my um, information. So I gleaned a lot of information from the clearinghouse in Nakata and uh, academic advising today, et cetera. But then, um, you know, the opportunity for the first international conference came up. Um, this was in Nasrit, I believe, in 2013. Um, and um, I was uh, very interested in uh, attending that conference, um, and I also wanted to present at that conference, um, and my university was supportive of that idea, so I was lucky enough to uh, attend that conference, and, um, you know, anybody who's been to the international conference uh, knows what a communal uh, affair that is. And uh, the Nakata leadership is really, um, really fantastic in terms of cultivating community. Um, so they just kind of pulled me in. I really gravitated towards how welcoming and open they were. And I think I volunteered to man, I think, the, the desk or um, 
maybe collect um, the session evaluations and things like that. And that started the process. Um, and uh, it just kind of snowballed from there. And you've done so much and, you know, and there's so many other things that we didn't read in the bio that, that you're, that you're doing or have done. And one of those is you were the chair of the global initiatives committee. And I think during that time you created um, and launched the visiting advisor program. Um, Can you talk more about how that came about and, and what you do within, in that program? Absolutely. This subject is a little raw for me because we just had our last meeting yesterday. Last time, <laughs> my last meeting as the chair of the GIC. Um, very bittersweet. Uh, Susan Corner is uh, going to do some incredible stuff with the GIC as the incoming chair. Uh, but um, honestly, it has been such a joy to be part of that uh, committee first as a member and uh, then as the chair. And the visiting advisor program is something that uh, Susan and I um, have worked on for several years now. Um, we started this when Oscar was the chair of the GIC. Um, and we had the GIC members like Kathy uh, help us through, um, Kathy Stockwell, sorry, help us through that process uh, quite a bit. So the Visiting Advisor Program, I think, is a wonderful opportunity, but I might be biased there. Um, the reason it came about is because, um, you know, students have an opportunity to do study abroad programs, and there's such a an incredible experience, right? I mean, life-changing people who do that. Um, faculty have the option for faculty exchanges, uh, but um, we had never seen uh, an exchange program for um, primary role advisors, professional advisors. And so we thought that, well, if it's not there, we gotta create it, uh, right? So uh, we started um, working on that through the GIC and it, it took a long time. We consulted with a lot of people um, world over uh, and the um, visiting advisor program went through several iterations before it was finally launched after getting you know, the approvals from the Nakata leadership. Um, and I'm also very excited to report that Nakata is so supportive of the Visiting Advisor Program that um, they're financially supporting it uh, through five scholarships of $2,000 each. Uh, so I would really encourage people to not only consider applying for a exchange program for advisors, but also use the scholarship that Nakata is offering to fund um, that exchange. And I suppose, Mavash, while, you know, you're, as you said, your time as the, the chair of the, the GIC has come to close, your leadership roles within the CADA continue because you have been elected to the board. So uh, congrats on that. And I suppose, what what are you looking forward to um, during your, your time on the board? Um, be interested in hearing about that. 
Thank you for that column. I'm very excited uh, to serve on the board and uh, really looking forward to that opportunity. Uh, but uh, also a little apprehensive, um, you know, starting a new role in Nakata um, definitely brings with it a lot of responsibility and I hope that I can do justice to that role. Um, for me, what I'm looking forward to in my capacity on the board of directors is to bring a global perspective to the board. I'm not uh, the first um, member um, to serve on the board from outside of North America, um, but I think that we need to continue to have representation of members who are outside of North America on the board because the board is responsible for kind of, you know, developing the the direction that Nakata is going into. So I think it is really important that the voices of uh, people, of members uh, from the world over are represented on the board. So I'm excited uh, to contribute, it, uh, contribute in a small way to that effort. Oh yeah, we know the you on the board and and the rest of the board members. Like, there's going to be great things that are going to be happening uh, within Nakata. And you've mentioned already a few times global, and so we know, like, from knowing you and everything that you've done so far, and going to continue to do, how you're going to be bringing together um, the global advising community. And kind of going back to when you were chair of the global initiatives committee for the GIC, um, you and your committee actually brought about the global lounge, right? Yeah, we are so excited about the Global Lounge. Um, so it uh, was first launched in, um, I believe, last year's uh, annual conference. And uh, Matt, I know you and Colm, you spent some time there um, at the Global Lounge. Um, so that was really nice. Matt, I know you were doing some filming there as well for, for your videos. That was cool. Uh, we wanted to create a space um, at the conference uh, to build community for people to come together, uh, hang out, network, talk to each other, get to know each other, have some fun, engage in meaningful conversations, and also uh, a space that would reflect the diversity of Nakata members. So the Global Lounge uh, that... Um, uh, the physical space that we had at the 2019 annual conference had uh, posters that described advising uh, from different parts of the world. Um, we also had food uh, from different parts of the world. We had some games and it uh, really became a space where people spend 10 minutes or an hour uh, between sessions to hang out and connect with people. Um, it was a really fun space to hang out. And we had to kind of switch our thinking for the virtual conference uh, this year uh, fairly quickly. And, you know, the, the credit goes to the GIC for coming up with some ideas to make that happen. Um, the tricky thing with the virtual uh, conference is, of course, the time zones and um know uh, people are attending the conference at different times so we had to uh, figure out a way to make the space available at varied times and uh, make it interesting and uh, 
informative. So we decided to uh, capture the two main goals of the Global Lounge, which is to build community, have some fun with some games uh, that were really good. But uh, we also wanted to make sure that we have, um, you know, a space where people can engage in conversations and get to know each other more deeply. So we had uh, sometimes some longer times set aside for people to have facilitated conversations as well. Um, and um, the feedback has been good. So um, I think the members can say more about that because I'm completely biased toward that. Well, alongside your uh, scholarly work and your leadership roles, I think we can add um, game show host to your list of talents, Ravash, uh, because uh, your 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 ability to bring people in and to get people involved in those games uh, definitely added to the the fun of the global lounge. And I know I'm not alone in saying that. Uh, certainly, D- David Gray and I had a conversation about it. We we both really enjoyed it, and. I suppose building on that about the the way in which you were able to make the the Global Lounge so accessible in a virtual sense. In terms of we're recording this um, just a a week on, a week ago, we were all part of the the virtual conference. What was your experience of that first virtual annual conference like? Well, I think um, the Nakata EO and the planning committee did an absolutely incredible job. Absolutely incredible. Um, I can definitely see the amount of work that went into that conference and kind of switching gears and replanning it uh, for the virtual space. Um, kudos to them. Uh, and I want to extend my gratitude for the planning committee and the Nakata EO for making it happen. For somebody who is all the way in the United Arab Emirates, I really appreciated it. Uh, In fact, I'm still appreciating it because I'm still going through the sessions. Um, And that's one of the best things about the virtual conference is that you can attend a lot more sessions uh, than you could if it was a live in-person uh, event. Um, one of the challenges of an in-person annual conference is that there's so many good sessions happening at the same time um, that it's impossible to attend them all, especially when you are involved in a leadership role within Nakata. Um, because of the amount of meetings that you have, you unfortunately have to miss a lot of the sessions. But having a virtual conference, um, it's such a blessing because I have just been able to attend so many more sessions and I can do it like when I'm having dinner or, you know, brushing my teeth in the morning, just kind of have that running in the background and I'm just loving it. And it's so much more affordable too. Uh, (laughs) traveling from the UAE um, all the way to uh, the U.S. or to Canada where uh, the annual conferences are typically held. Um, is financially, um, you know, challenging. Uh, I've been lucky that my university has supported 
uh, me in doing that for several years, uh, but it's uh, definitely a lot more affordable to attend virtually and a lot more convenient. So I've just been really grateful. And so you were talking about the sessions and being able to watch them, that they were recorded. Um, and you were talking about like your schedule in leadership and really kind of, in a sense, how busy you are. And, you know, we haven't even gotten to, yet to talk about like your, your role at your institution yet. Like this is all just within Nakata. But you also were able to record uh, a couple on-demand sessions as well. Uh, one of them was the, the visiting program for Nakata. And so you've already talked about that. Um, and that is a, a session, too, that they can folks can listen to. But there was another one that you were part of, correct? That's correct. Uh, so that was a panel discussion on uh, global advising issues. Uh, that is something that we have done um, for several years at uh, you know annual conferences and also at international conferences, um, Penny um, from uh, UK does a fantastic job of um, pulling in people from across the globe uh, to uh, represent their perspectives on advising and how um, advising is done and what student success means. So for this uh, panel discussion. Um, we had, you know, some great people. Um, uh, David from UK was there. We had, um, you know, uh, a representative from Canada. Shay was part of it. Uh, we had somebody from the East Coast of the US, Karen. We had Leah from the West Coast. We had Oscar and then myself. Um, Oscar from the Netherlands, and then I was representing the UAE. So a really diverse group of advising professionals talking about student success and advising practices and challenges uh, during these times in particular. So I would encourage people to listen to that. It is available, I believe, for like another month or even more on uh, uh, the Nakata app. And Mavash might put you a little bit on the, the spot with this, but we've asked uh, other guests, uh, I suppose, any particular highlights or takeaways from the conference? Yeah, um, I mean, so many sessions. Um, I have been gravitating towards the tech-based uh, sessions a lot more. Uh, so there's a session uh, that... Um, George Steele did with uh, JP on flipped advising. I found that very interesting and I'm excited to uh, try out some of those strategies because we have never done that in, in my department here. Um, there was another session, I believe, um, talking about Indiana University's uh, platform for tracking advising contributions. Um, so that I found very interesting uh, because I uh, was recently working with Craig on an article on professionalizing uh, academic advising. And that particular session talked about, you know, how advisors can use this new platform that they've created to um, track what they have done at their institution and within professional associations and articles that they've written and all of that stuff, how they can kind of track all of that through this platform. And I thought that's, that's 
fantastic, uh, really good way to demonstrate to the leadership within the, your own university all the different ways in which advisors are contributing to student success and to the field of academic advising as a whole. So I really love that. Um, but the thing that kind of sticks in my mind from the advising, uh, from the uh, annual conference was the closing keynote um, and uh, working from a place of heart and love. And I think that is fantastic. And it's a good reminder uh, of the relational component of academic advising and that we should approach everything we do uh, with authenticity and, and love. So I've already added to my list to check out that advisor contributions one. So thank you for mentioning that. Um, and yeah, that closing keynote, oh my goodness. I wish everyone, you know, all across the world can can listen to that because so much great advice. And I think it really kind of makes you, because some of the stuff like we know we should do, but we don't always do. Um, like especially taking care of ourselves, we've got to take ourselves, we're going to take care of everyone else and, you know, having that empathy and, and being able to have that relational peace. So very powerful, um, uh, closing keynote. And then even that opening keynote too, where, oh, so amazing. yeah, where I was talking with Charlie in terms of, um, you know, like this would have been great in person, but also the fact that the fact that was, um, through zoom, it was almost like the, like like she was talking to each of us individually, like sitting next to us. Um, and so I think, you know, very much a lot of positives for that that virtual conference. Um, now, you mentioned also working with, with Craig. And um, so I have a, a tab open and I'm meaning to, to read this. Um, and that was the skills and competencies for effective academic advising and personal tutoring. So I'm definitely going to be checking that out that uh, both of you uh, wrote with uh, Dion Barton. So really looking forward to, forward to that. Now, something that we asked Quentin Alexander uh, a couple days ago uh, when we were interviewing him was he was part of the Emerging Leaders Program with the same cohort you were in, correct? Mm-hmm. And so we, what we asked him, we'll also ask you, what was your experience uh, in the Emerging Leaders Program? Oh, my gosh. Um, incredible. <laughs> it was positive in every single way. Um, I was paired with uh, Kathy, Kathy Davis, who is, oh, my gosh, she's so incredible. Um, absolutely the most genuine, the most loving person, the most positive, uh, empowering person out there. She is so, so incredible. Um, and she kind of, she, she doesn't know what she's done for me in terms of motivating me and uh, really kind of nurturing the enthusiasm that I had and kind of taking it to the next level and the next level after that. Um, the confidence that she gives uh, her emerging leaders is just incredible. She has been a mentor, I believe, three times. Um, and uh, I think we are all really, really blessed to have um, her as a mentor. And I know all of the other um, emerging leaders who went through that program just had such a positive experience. It's so great to have a structure in place for mentorship. I mean, I think we all just genuinely create mentors or people that we look up to and go to for advice and things like that. 
but through the Emerging Leaders Program, having that structured mentorship, um, you know, really kind of uh, having explicit goals outlined and then having somebody hold you accountable for those goals is just so powerful. And I feel that, you know, after graduating, uh, there are very few places where you can have somebody kind of hold you accountable for uh, learning, for growth, for achieving um, certain things that you've dis- uh, you've uh, uh, determined for yourself. So it's a really powerful experience, and I would um, you know recommend it to anybody who's interested in a leadership position within Nakata. So we we have talked about you know, some of your work with Nakata, your experiences with Nakata. Let's discuss maybe your your day-to-day and uh, your work as the Director of Academic Support Services at AUS. Could you tell us a little bit about, you know, obviously, look, no no, no day is the same, but, you know, I suppose your, your work at, at your home institution. Absolutely. So my department is the Academic Support Center at American University of Sharjah. Um, We work with uh, students uh, when they first join university through our initiative called the First Year Experience. And then even beyond that, uh, through advising, peer advising, um, student success workshops. Um, So students... uh, the university, American University of Sharjah, has a shared split model of advising. So they have um, academic or major advisors within their own academic units. Um, they're typically faculty advisors, but that really depends on the college they're in. Sometimes they're primary role advisors. However, when a student needs additional supports uh, beyond that, that's where our uh, department uh, comes into play. So we have primary role advisors um, who work with students who are interested perhaps in changing their major or are are an academic probation, uh, reinstated students, um, or just good standing students who are looking to get even better. Um, So our advisors um, work with those students uh, even after the first year. We also manage academic accommodations for students with disabilities uh, through our office. So uh, my role as a director for a department that manages the first year experience, student success workshops, peer advising and advising for the university is to um, you know, cast vision for the department to make sure that um, the initiatives that are coming out of my department are contributing in meaningful ways to the strategic goals of the university to make sure that we are a fiscally sound uh, unit on campus, to make sure that the quality of services uh, we are delivering are in line with international best practices. Um, My role is to help my team grow as professionals. Um, So those are some of the things that I feel fall within my purview as the director for the academic support center. 
So it almost seems like with with your um, department, like every student in a sense could be meeting, whether it's through email, in person, um, uh, through some type of appointment, Zoom, uh, and kind of like uh, and throughout their time at the at, at the university they're going to be in some sort of contact with your department uh, because you do so many different things. And I kind of really like, you know, that your advising philosophy is on your website um, and, you know, that you are actually listing like some of the theories on there, you know, where you talk about utilizing a diverse range of advising tools and theories and actually, you know, embrace some of them in terms of developmental advising, strengths-based advising, coaching, that you talk about engagement. And I think that really just kind of, you know, sums up a lot in terms of what you're trying to accomplish with your students. How are things right now just with COVID and everything and and how that impacts your office or your students? Absolutely. You know, in terms of the advising philosophy, I'm a strong proponent in having a um, kind of a living document of uh, an advising philosophy. Um, It's something that my team and I um, revisit every year. Uh, we look at our, our policies, also our mission. We look at our individual advising philosophies. So each of my team members, myself included, we have an individual advising philosophy. And then we got together and we drafted uh, that departmental advising philosophy. And I think it's just so important when you're working f- from an intentional place and an advising philosophy allows you to be really intentional in your interactions with students rather than just, you know, meeting with a student and um, going where the student takes you. I think it's okay to let the student drive the advising discussion, but also to um, be grounded in some sort of theory. I I think it gives you clear direction and clear intent. Um, So um, in terms of what it's been like for us these days, Um, Very interesting, to say the least. Right now, our university is, I would say, like 95% virtual. Um, There are some students who uh, periodically need to go on campus. Uh, These are like, you know, maybe senior students or graduate students who are doing research and need to access labs and things like that uh, to conduct their research. But all classes um, and... um, all services are fully virtual. And since going virtual, um, we've actually seen a significant uptick in um, the students that are coming in to seek our services. The number of students that are coming in for our workshops has well, like doubled, tripled. Um, in the first month of the semester, uh, we met um more students than the entire last year combined for our workshop sessions, uh, which was pretty incredible. Um, And also, you know, we're seeing more students coming for advising sessions, less no-shows, less cancellations. I think um, being virtual has definitely made it easier for students to access our services. Um, Also, I feel that I have grown so much uh, in terms of my competencies since going virtual. I've just learned so much um, in terms of, you know, tools that are available for advisors. Um, You know, uh, my comfort level with Blackboard uh, has increased 
tremendously, um, you know, all of these uh, social media platforms and virtual conferencing platforms. I just feel like my level of competence is much higher now. And I've seen that across my university as well. I feel that, you know, it's really shaken things up in a good way um, for for faculty and for um, student services um, and given us lots of good ideas. We're already brainstorming how we can look at a hybrid model even when um, you know we go back to face-to-face uh, -face classes because students have really appreciated some of the virtual programming that we've done. And it would be a shame to put that aside and go back to the way uh, we were doing things before. So we are definitely brainstorming ways to kind of take some of the things that we are doing now and blend it with our face-to-face services so we're excited about that yeah lots of lots of learning but um of course Mamash, in in the midst of all of this you took on even more responsibility because uh you got yourself a puppy who has become quite a, a star of your social media uh, so right when the restrictions were, were uh being imposed around the the world um could, do you want to tell us a, a little bit uh, about luna absolutely okay so best decision I ever made. Absolutely get a puppy. We got her, um, she's a rescue. We adopted her on March 12th. And um, this is actually the first pet that uh, any of us have ever had. Uh, so um, my, uh, my spouse has never had a pet uh, and I've never had a pet. So uh, complete newbies here. Uh, but um, my kids have been interested and I've been interested in uh, getting a dog for a very long time. And just before everything shut down, uh, we were fortunate enough to come across Luna and we decided to go ahead and um, take her in. And it has been such a blessing because, you know, we were all at home all through the summer I have two young boys, all right, 12 years old and nine years old, and it gets ridiculously hot in the UAE. So it's not like during the summer break, they can go outside and spend the day outside playing. You can't do that. So Luna definitely kept us all entertained over the summer when we were all stuck at home. And um, yeah, her name is Luna Hufflepuff. We are Harry Potter fans here, um, and it was uh, quite um, a project to um, agree on a name, but uh, Luna Hufflepuff it is, and yeah, so happy to have her. That is an awesome name. That's so cool. Now, as we wrap up the interview, now you've taught various uh, psychology courses. Um, do you have a favorite psychology course that, that you enjoy teaching the most? Uh, oh, that's a hard question. Um, <laughs> so I have a soft spot for intra-psychology. I really do. Because um, when I was in undergraduate myself, um, I was a biology major. Uh, I was uh, med school bound. I had taken my MCATs, did relatively well on them. Um, but in my senior year, 
as an elective, I took an intra-psych course. And that literally changed the direction of my life. Um, in my senior year, I switched my major from biology to psychology because of that intro psych course. Um, so I do have a soft spot for that and I love teaching that course. Um, but my favorite course to teach would have to be abnormal psychology. I think that that's my field and I have such a passion for it. Um, so I love teaching abnormal psychology. That would be my favorite one. Avash, this has been fascinating and we could probably talk to you, you know, for another 45 minutes. You are a wonderful leader uh, within the global advising community. You are a community builder. Your passion for the profession and for higher ed and for the students shines through. So uh, we look forward to the work that you are going to, to do on the NACADA board and continuing to, to strengthen those links around uh, the globe. And thank you for taking the time to chat to myself and Matt today. Thank you so much for uh, having me on your podcast. This has been such a pleasure. Always good to see you, Colm and Matt. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mavash. Always great catching up with you. It was nice hearing about how you started with the background in psychology and moved into academic advising and how the psychology theories translate into academic advising theories. And best to you on all the great stuff you'll be doing on the Nakata board. You have such a positive attitude about you, and it's something that I think people remember about you. And positivity is something we all need, especially to finish out 2020. But speaking of positivity, let's jump into our final interview of this episode, and that is with returning podcast guest, Charlie Nutt. We thought, well, if we're going to interview someone about Nakata and the Nakata Virtual Conference, Charlie has to be on that list. It was one, wonderful to catch up with Charlie, and two, to talk to him about Nakata and academic advising from the executive office perspective. So without further ado, here we go. <music> All right, friends, who do we have up next? Well, it's someone who needs no introduction, but of course, that means they still get an introduction. This person is someone who is well-respected, the person you want in your corner, the person who will encourage you to no end, a mentor and friend to so many, the person you really have a hard time saying no to because he asks you so politely. And he's also the person that will tell you to go for whatever crazy idea you have and to see what happens. And that person is none other than returning podcast guest, Dr. Charlie Nutt, Executive Director of Nakata. Charlie, welcome back to Adventures in Advising. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and Colm. And you know how much I support the podcast and what a great opportunity it is for higher education and advisors. So I just thank you so much for asking me to be back. So thank you. Well, we appreciate the support, Charlie. And it's always, um, as we would say in Ireland, it's always good crack to, cha to chat to Charlie Nutt. So um I suppose there's there's any number of, of things that uh, we can can delve into in in our time together, but we are just about to, today, just a week on from the the end of the first ever Nakata virtual annual conference, and uh, I suppose as the executive director, how was the conference experience for you? You know, I have to look at it in two ways. One way is. How do I think it was for the association and the participants and the members? The other answer is how it was for me as an individual. Um, 
I'm going to start with me as an individual because I think it probably most leaders would agree with this. You know, in the face-to-face conference, we have all of those meetings that have to occur, all the governing things that have to happen, all of that. So I've been with Nakata now 18 years. I probably have gone to a total of three or four sessions at the annual conference in 18 years total. And being able to go to sessions for the virtual was probably the most exciting part of this event. I actually got to attend and hear what people are saying and hear what people are doing. So for me, that was one of the most exciting parts of it. So uh, it was a huge success for me for that. Um, For the association, the participants, I think it was a great opportunity. I really, really do. Um, We all love to be together. We all love to be face-to-face. We know that was not an option for this year. But I think the executive office staff and the conference planning committee did a phenomenal job with choosing a platform that worked, choosing a platform that was easy to move around in, that had a lots of social opportunities within it, but still provided just great sessions and great opportunities. And so I think it was a huge success. Um, you know, I've read the social wall constantly. I've looked at the valuations. We don't have a whole lot of complaints um, within it. I think most people, you know, once they read the email carefully and knew exactly how to get in, once they got in, um, it was really very, it was an intuitive platform and people enjoyed that. So I'm very, very pleased. To have have close to 2,400 people register was just kind of blew me away. I I never imagined we'd get that many people. And I just think it shows the commitment of this association and our members to the association to to advising. So I know that was a long answer, probably longer than you wanted. I apologize. But I do really think it was success. I'm just, I'm very hyped about it. Yeah, and we were talking with Jonathan Hallford earlier, and you know, we were kind of sharing that at least for me, like I was very hesitant when the decision was made that it was going virtual because I was like, I don't know how this is going to go in such a short amount of time. Where, you know, you had the committee that really planned for Puerto Rico, something that was in person, and then they had to go shift 180 degrees and go to a different format. But as an attendee, yeah, it was. I thought it was amazing. You know, I thought I would be zoomed out by the end, but I was actually still, you know, had a lot of energy and and wanted more. I mean, of course, there are going to be the cons to something like a a virtual conference, for example. Um, I know some people shared that uh, with the live sessions, you know, they had the Q&A, which they appreciated. But one of the things with an in-person conference is once you're done with uh, a session, you can go and chat with the presenter and still have that follow up. But what was nice about this is you can look them up on through that website, through that socio app. And so there could still be a continuation um, after that. And, and that, that's one of the things that we already talked mm-hmm. about the executive office is um, yeah. with any virtual experience we have to do in the future. We don't know what those are all going to look like yet, that we need to build in some way of continuing that chat afterwards. Um, you know, part of it was the scheduling issue of trying to do international and so we couldn't do a full day, even though I'm not sure I would have recommended a full eight-hour Zoom day. Um, but um, we needed to begin at noon at the earliest to try to do as much as we could with time zones. Um, so that means we didn't have the option of a whole lot of free time in between. We're already talking about what we may need to do differently um, for the future within that. But I think you're and then going to your point in terms of having, you know, almost 2,400 attendees, um, I think that just shows 
how much people believe in Nakata because I know a lot of institutions, mine included, where budget was is an issue. And I know professional development is one of those things that kind of gets cut for right now. And I know a lot of folks that actually paid out of pocket to attend. And I think mm-hmm. that just shows, again, how much they believe in Nakata in the organization and how much they want to learn. Now, one of the things that um, Nakata did was have that award ceremony mm-hmm. that Usually, um, guests are invited to, but in this case, it was actually free to anyone, whether they registered for the conference or not. What led to the decision to open this opportunity up to everyone to view? And the second question to that is, um, what has been the feedback so far from people who uh, that you know that watched the virtual award ceremony? I think it was an easy decision, Matt, to be honest. The only reason it's ever been closed is because of the food. I mean, you know, we, we, we want to make it very nice for the award winners. So it's a pretty nice little buffet spread there. And, and, and it's not an inexpensive food venue. And so open it up without having to charge people extra. You know, we're, we're a unique association, I think. And, and y'all probably have all attended conferences where you get this, but then you pay extra for this, you pay extra for this, and you pay extra. We've never done that, so we tried not to go that path. To open up the award ceremony, that it would have to be a separate cost, except to the people who were invited. Um, so once we decided we were going virtual as a conference, it just made perfect sense that let's open this up to God and everybody, anybody who wants to watch. Um, the folks I've heard from that, that have been most impressed with it, Matt, were, of course, the award winners who were able to get their campuses to watch, their provosts, their deans, their fellow advisors. They had watch parties to see their people win their awards. I think that was really positive within that. I think the other group were the new members who really did not know Nakata even gave awards. This was the first Nakata event. And that they were the first thing they were invited to was an award ceremony where they could see, wait a minute, not only can I come here to get professional, but this is also something that we could build into our awards program for recognition because, you know, y'all know from your campuses, recognition is one of the things every campus fights about. Um, and if you're brand new to the association, you know if you know we give awards. That's not something you just register for the conference. You can just come across your desk. So I heard from a lot of new members or new first-time attendees that this was really exciting for them because they didn't realize that was even a possible. Several of them immediately wrote saying, where are the applications for next year's award? You're like, like while, while it was going on, I got some text about that. You know, it's like, we don't have those up yet. Um, but yeah, I think those were the two groups that, that found it the most beneficial within. I think everybody enjoyed it, but I think those were the two that really appreciated it. Yeah, and I, I think the fact that you know, the watch parties that, that you mentioned, Charlie, and I, I think that is so important to not just the award winners, but to the profession, because it it's that recognition that you talk about. It's the fact that people on campuses will say, hey, did you see the Nakata Awards? Who are Nakata? Oh, the advice. Oh, and, and it leads to a real recognition around campus for advisors, which is, you know, tremendous for, for the profession and for the association. Now, I suppose there, there's been so much positive feedback and, um, you know, people have said the, the ability to go back and to watch sessions. And it was interesting to hear you say about the ability to, to attend sessions yourself. 
in in the future and none of us know what that looks like but i'm i'm you know we we all hope at some point whenever that is that we will be back face to face but i suppose the, putting the genie back in the bottle is is a difficult thing to do and has there been consideration now that for people who can't attend um nakata conferences in person in the future that there might be access to parts of it virtually i'm trying to figure out how um Biden and Trump avoid questions and just kind of move around them. I'm trying to think of the skills they used with this guys at, in the town hall last night. Um, that's a question I'd like to move around, Colin. But y'all know me. I don't move around things. I'm pretty straightforward. Um, you know, we've just ended this one. And so we're still wrapping it up in many ways. Um, so I'm probably going to get a riot from my executive office staff as I say this. I think we all recognize, even in the next couple of years, even if even if the virus ends in January, we're still going to deal with two at least two years, if not more, of real budget issues in higher education. And so even if we are able to be in Cincinnati next year, we're not going to see the, the 4,000 people that we normally have had which means we've got to provide a way of providing those people professional development. So I think I'll just, if you'll let me get by with Scotty this Matt column and Matt, just to say, we recognize that in the future, there's, we're going to need virtual components to our live events. We can't go back to just live and just virtual. Now what that looks like, I can't tell you, um, you know, whether we do a, you know, a package Matt can't come, but he wants to come to the the keynote speeches. He wants to come to four sessions. He pays this much. I'm, I don't know. I have no idea. I probably said more than I should have with even that example because I don't know. But I think everyone realizes that we're never going to go back to total in person. What it looks like, I can't tell you. But absolutely, we, we've opened the genie. The, the bottle. And quite frankly, we did a damn good job of it. And when you do that good a job, people say, well, you did it last year. <laughs> but, you know, so, so I think we recognize to meet the needs of the profession and our members, there's going to be some virtual component. I just don't have any idea what that will look like at this point. Actually, I think that's a fantastic answer. I don't think you skirted the, the, the answer at all. Um, skirting it would probably be like, that's a great question. And then answer some other random question that we didn't ask you. <laughs> so. Okay. See, that's the other problem. I probably don't think as fast as they do because I wasn't thinking about what could be another question to go to. <laughs> well, I'm sure politicians, they get uh, they get prepped ahead of time and they get told, hey, uh, yeah. if you get asked this question, answer it this way by avoiding it. So yeah, if y'all didn't tell me what you were asking, I didn't have a chance to do that. <laughs> but I think it's also like when we talked with, with Jonathan um, you know, um, he was saying that it's, you know, we were kind of joking where it was like, go big or go home, because what what better way to test out a virtual uh, conference than with the biggest one <laughs> with with the annual? And yeah, I think overall it worked. Um, you know, I'm sure you're going to be waiting to get the, those survey results back uh, from attendees to see what they thought. But yeah, I mean, I, I think if we were to be a newspaper, we would take the headline of what you just said and say, you know, Charlie Nutt said, we can't go back to the way things were. But, um, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll see if there's any type of virtual components to things. But it, it's it's work in progress. You guys will discuss all of that and, and figure it all out. And then you'll let us know. Yeah. And it's the same thing 
Matt, with with your campuses. Mm-hmm. I mean, your your campuses are recognizing that even if you go back to own campus in the spring, right, it's still not going to look the same. So you know, it, it's just where we are right now. And mm-hmm. and my goal is for Nakata not to be behind the eight ball, for Nakata mm-hmm. to be leading and not following. Um, and you know, I think we did some things with this conference that other associations haven't done. Like, like with the, everyone got a virtual background with their name and institution on it, which I think was a nice mm-hmm. touch. Um, but it was a touch other people didn't get. And so, you know, I, I, yeah, those are things we have to look at. And I just want to be sure that Nakata's ahead of the game and not behind the game. Well, it's even when you're talking about work, right? Um, so like institutions, like we were, a lot of us working still remotely, but we can still do everything from home. So we know that's going to be a conversation that comes up when eventually we all go back to, to campus. Can we still work from home or partly work from home? So, I mean, it's it's all going to be new stuff. Um, but with the virtual conference, you know, we had that opening keynote uh, from Dr. Laura Rendon, who is nationally recognized as an education theorist, an activist, a researcher. And Dr. Oh my God, she was amazing. Yeah. And Dr. Rendon spoke about working with a justice and equity focus, talked about false narratives, counter stories, the role of advisors. Um, what were your takeaways uh, from that keynote? Yeah, I was just so blown away, Matt um, and Colm. I probably have an unintended outcome for y'all because I look at it a little differently because I also look at it from the standpoint of how we do it, how it works, and did that happen, you know, in some ways. The thing that just kept hitting me so hard was virtually I got so much more from it than probably if she'd been on the stage and I'd been in the back of the audience. It was, I mean, we had 1,800 people in that room that day. She was sitting in each one of our offices talking to us in a conversation. Because number one, that's how Laura does it. Laura doesn't preach at you. It's a conversation. That's just the way she is. Um, but even the, the um, Ken at the end, um, I think so. it was just, that just struck me. Because I'm not sure I knew that was what it was going to feel like, which is a good side of virtual uh, within it. Um, so I think that was a takeaway for me within it. I think the thing that that I just took from her conversation, the same thing I took from from um Tyrone's last year is we've got to keep talking about how do we get students to belong? How do we get members to belong? How do we get people to feel connected? And how do we really work with the idea of what are microaggressions and how do we change those? Because we've gotten by too many years with saying, but I didn't mean that. That's not how it was meant. That's not, you know, you're taking it wrong. No, that's what you said. And it doesn't matter whether you realized it or not. That's still what you said. You know, when she said the person that, when she wrote the the first graduate paper Mm -hmm. and the professor said, did you write this on your own or something to that point? Or is this how you always write or something? You know, the assumption automatically that she wrote too well to be a Hispanic graduate student. I know he didn't mean that. And I know that wasn't what he was saying, but that's what he meant. And that, and so I think it's getting people to recognize that we're not we're not saying, Matt, you're bad because you made a macroaggression. What we're saying is, Matt, you need to learn. And we can't improve until we learn. So it's getting people to open up and learn and listen was one thing I just took from so much. And that it is getting people to learn. We can't beat people over the head. We got to bring them to the table. 
and had that conversation. And I was just so impressed with the way she talked about that. Yeah, I, as you know, Charlie, uh, Matt and I were doing interviews um, throughout the, the conference. And I remember this time last mm-hmm. week, so it was after the conference, and I spoke to Sean Bridgen and to Marianne Gabra. And mm-hmm. even after the conference, we're so many days on, and people were still talking about that opening keynote and the impact that it had. And you saw it across social media, across all the platforms, be it the social wall on the app, be it on Facebook, be it on Twitter. It was something that reoccurred again and again and again because it really resonated um, and I suppose one of the things that kind of stood out to me was uh, what you mentioned there that the the crisis I think of alienation that we have but the the importance of community the importance of belonging and I what was struck by was one of the sessions for the um, the global community the global lounge which I was so delighted that still existed in the the virtual conference so kudos to nakata and to the organizing committee well it it was right that it did but <laughs> not every not every organization would have uh you know would, would have done it so so kudos to the dic and and to Rhonda for for making it happen but during that what was great to see was even though it was the global the global community the global lounge there were people from all over there. It wasn't just the international community. There were people from the United States who came and joined those sessions because they said they felt part of that community. And I thought that was great. And I think part of that column has to go with how well it did and the fact that that was one of the reasons I was so assertive that the Global Lounge would happen in every single networking because if you noticed, the other four were different topics. That was the Mm -hmm. one that was consistent was mm-hmm. because I watched that in St. Louis. What, was it St. Louis? Louisville. Louisville. Um, I watched it. I mean, I walked by there. You all know that. I was I was stopping in there, and there were just as many people from North America who were in that room and stopped by that place and sat down and talked to y'all. And I just remembered that and said, we can't lose this. It, it began something beautiful there. Now, I'm going to say to you two, you two were part of that. I mean, you setting up the the interviews, you doing people came to see y'all. So kudos to the two of you that helped make that to be so successful last year. I think part of people remembered that, and that's why they came to this um, at the meeting. So, um, yes, there there was just no way it couldn't happen. But I think part of that has to do with how well it it did in in, um, Louisville. And y'all were part of that, making that happen. So thank you to the two of you. No, I, I was just going to say, I suppose, um, what what I th- found was interesting as well was um, I had spoken earlier in, in the year about uh, that y- the virtual space is, is different from the physical space. And one of the, I think, sometimes higher ed has struggled with that. And I, one of the things that I had seen that worked really well was, um, you know, immersive theater or, or interactive theater. But it felt like as we went along that, um, yeah. you know, things improved. And I think UCAT did a great job, but it felt like, again, Nakata had learned lessons from from others and taken it on board. And I think that's one of the great things about the association that it it made use of the virtual space. It didn't merely try to replicate the physical in, in yeah. the virtual. And I'm, assu- I'm assuming that was a deliberate decision. Oh, absolutely. We started, you know, even though we didn't make the decision and I mean, we didn't pull the plug because of the insurance issues 
until June or everything was together. Um, we've been talking about this ever since the virus hit. I mean, let's just be honest. Um, and one of the first groups we talked to is a group out of uh, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin-Madison. It's called the Centers for Instructional Teaching and Learning, I think, CERTL. And we're in a partnership with them for a project um, on faculty advising. And they had held an institute early in May. And so we immediately, we, we pulled, Sean got us connected. We pulled them in. The, all the staff met with them. And the first thing they said is, you cannot do what you did in person virtually. Get that out of your mind and go into it with, we're going to do the best virtual conference possible. It will not look like what you do in person. And that just became our mantra. I mean, every meeting we had after that, Jonathan's group, Matt was probably so tired of me saying that to that committee because I, you know, they met weekly. I tried to go in once a month and talk to them. Every board meeting, I said that. So that just really became the mantra that it's not going to look like what we've done in the past, but it's going to be fantastic. I mean, you know, Matt was on the awards committee column. And the awards committee wasn't always sold or there being a virtual awards ceremony. <laughs> and, and Matt knows I came to that group and said, guys, it's not going to look like it normally does. We know it's not, but we can do a fantastic virtual awards ceremony. And I'm sorry, it was amazing. It wasn't, you know, we didn't get to shake hands and get pictures, but it was amazing. But it took a little while to get that group to understand that. So I think we all get trapped in what we're used to, especially if you've been around Nakata for a while. This is what a region conference is. It's just going to be different, you know, and, you know, we're having the same conversations with all the, you know, the institutes and the region folks. And we're just trying to have that conversation because I think that's what really made it. The other piece, Colin, that you mentioned and oh, Matt, one of you, um, we did. Farah and Dana and Michelle, I just, I cannot say enough about Farah Turner Dana McQuarrie, Michelle Holiday. They were our team. The executive office, every single person was there. Every single person been involved, but those three were our leaders. They met with about every person that did any type of virtual conference anywhere in the world. They met with David Gray. He came in and talked about theirs. We met with the Illinois State Group because they did an Illinois meeting. We met with, I mean, they talk to everybody and with every single person, they got a new tidbit. They, okay. We want to do this and we want to do that. And, and um, I think the one thing we heard was get a platform. Don't just try to use zoom and just make it a hundred different zoom, get a platform. And um, that was a decision that was made early on. And, and with the socio product probably wasn't the best, but it was excellent. I, I believe. Um and so I think those, you're exactly right. Those three met with every single person possible. We opened all those meetings to the whole staff, and many of the staff came to every one of those uh, learning missions and, and discussions on. So um, I, I do think we spent a lot of time and, and really tried to do it right, but learning from as many people as we could. Yeah, and really shout out to Dana and Farah. I mean, especially as a presenter, um, if I had to email one of them for if I had a question like Dana was emailing back within like seconds. And I was like, but you have like your yeah. job responsibilities and this conference and however many things you're doing within the conference. And, you know, so really great job to them on that. And 
But shout out really to Don Krause and Brandon Loudon and uh, Leslie Ross and Jennifer McCall. Um, you know, I, I think for us, like when we initially got the the charge of make make this a virtual, I think for us, it was one of those like, wait, how are we supposed to do that? And just really kind of finding that creative way to do it. And sometimes just getting that little bit of a drive or nudge or push to, to make it happen. And um, I thought, yeah, overall, very, very well done. And it, even when it was like, oh, also make a video too. Farah was amazing. Um, so we just emailed Farah, hey, do you have any footage of Puerto Rico? She said, I'm not sure. And then like, an, you know, an hour later, it's like, oh, here you go. So well, the other thing, Matt, was, yes, we're financially sound. Yes, we're going to be financially sound. But there were cost of doing business that we had to do. The platform was one of those. For the award ceremony, those videos at the end where everyone was recognized, that was a cost. But it was, I think, I think it was saying to Dawn and saying to the committee, we know we're going to need to spend money on this. We don't normally spend the money, but let's go find out. And so Dawn started to do research and get the, the, you know, the videographers companies and I don't know who they finally chose. And, um, but I think it was some of it was also understanding that we're not going to ask you to do this without any funding to make it happen. And the association's got it. They're just cost of doing business. But I'm, mm-hmm. not everybody recognizes it. I always think that way because they think I'm cheap. <laughs> and so <laughs> within those. And so um, I think that was another piece, Matt. Once I said to them, once I said to y'all, we're going to give you the money. Y'all were like, oh, okay, then we'll figure it out. And then it was y'all went ahead. Yeah, now let's make a wish list of everything that we yeah, want. Exactly, exactly. Trust me, we're still cheaper probably than that food we pay for at the reception. I don't know. I have no idea whether it was or not. Um, but it was just a cost of doing business. I think that was some of that, Matt. Also, you're going to ask us to make a huge ship without any funding to make it? No, we can't do that. You know, It's not going to look the same. It's not going to cost the same. But you're going to have money that is used differently in different ways. We just have to figure out how to do it within it. I I know Matt neglected to give himself kudos for the video. Oh, thank how, you. I was hoping you would have kept How good was the video? It was it was fantastic. It was it. it was really good. Again, that another talking point that came up again and again and again. So kudos, Matt Markin. Well, well the second time it played. <laughs> I know, but it, but we but we made sure we played it, Matt. Now, and really, more people saw it, Matt, because we played it with the nineteen hundred people at the opening session. Within, I think that's the other thing that was so exciting to me. We probably had more in attendance percentage against a number of registrations at the general sessions that we do when we're live. You know, not everybody comes to the to the yeah. general sessions now. In defense, we also didn't have all the business stuff that happens normally. And we're going to, you know, lots of things we learned here going virtual that we need to think about taking to the back to life, whatever. Um, But, yeah, I was just blown away when I saw that 1,900 people in that and nobody left. There was not a walkout. I mean, there were not people and y'all know. General session, people sit in the back so they go get the reception food earlier that night. You know, they'll start leaving. Um, but nobody left. They were there till Laura said her last word. That's impressive. That's commitment. And so our members and our participants, they deserve such kudos because they needed this conference. They needed this opportunity to connect and talk to each other. And they took advantage of it. And and 
it would have been very easy not to do that. And I was just so impressed with it. Just, I was so impressed with our participants. I, I just can't tell you. It was amazing to watch. And it was such a great start for that opening keynote because, you know, Laura was talking about the future is touching us now and that mm-hmm. that the li- that we live in students' minds for such a long time. So we do have that impact. Absolutely. I think also people probably appreciated your Golden Girls reference in the beginning as well. Because <laughs> it is what I think about a lot. Because I think about Sophia and think, you know, <laughs> looking back, all of us going to say, you know, 220, y'all don't know what we went through in that year. <laughs> Charlie, I suppose one thing, um, maybe just to, to to move away from the the conference for for a minute, um, and I'm interested in in hearing your thoughts on it. And I, I again, I, I'm putting you on on the spot a little bit, like I, I did earlier, but hopefully in in a nice way. And it's because I, I think you are a leader in in advising, <laughs> and you know you have so many brilliant insights. But um, I I don't know if you saw, but um, Eric White did um did a piece for Inside Higher Ed earlier mm-hmm. in the summer in terms of academic advising in, in a pandemic and beyond. And I'm I, I suppose we're now we're now you know coming up on five six months almost from from then, and we are still for many of us in in a virtual format. We we don't know you know what Absolutely. the the next semester looks like, what the next academic year looks like, for advisors where there is so much uncertainty right now have you have you any any words uh, of advice for for the listeners out there um you know i think the first thing column and and y'all probably have heard me say it to other groups but it's so true is that i think the thing about the advising community that we have to recognize is of all the communities in higher education this is the group who stepped up the fastest last spring to make go virtual happen. Not being negative at any other group on campus, but while the faculty were trying to figure out what to do with their classes and residence life was trying to what, figure out what to do with the residence halls and all of it, it was advisors who were dealing with the students who were panicked. And so already the advising community has recognized they're the piece that has to connect there the most. Um, but with that said, people are tired. I mean, it's been a long spring and summer. And we heard this from several folks, from Laura, from Ken. I think part of it is we've got to help advisors figure out how to step back from the job when they're at home. Because it is so easy when you're at home to keep going to the email at night on weekends to go and look to do so that virtually i mean in person none of us go home and quit for the day but we have at least some amounts of time that when we leave the office we're not constantly online or on the email when we're at home all day long and then it there's no stop there's no end and i think that's something i I worry about that i'm hoping that we can find ways to help advisors figure out how to do that better um i worry about my own staff with that i'm gonna be honest i mean you talked about Ferrison. I mean, Dana answering email within minutes. That could be 11 o'clock at night. That could be what it, because those ladies never got off. And I'll worry about that with just a step. But but I do. That's one thing I worry about, Colin. I think the other piece is we've got to do a better job of communicating up the chain on our campuses about what advising has been doing during this pandemic and how valuable it's been to the student success, their numbers, 
the increase some campuses have seen in retention and graduation and even enrollment during this time, that's advising because we all have those students who never come in to see us. They've come in to see y'all virtually because they didn't have to make an appointment. It wasn't scary. They didn't have to walk in there and be seen by anybody. They could just log in and talk to somebody. So your numbers of student contacts on your campuses, and I'm not telling you to anything you don't know, has has escalated. But have we communicated that up the line to deans, to provost, to pres- to the people who are making the decisions about funding? Do they recognize the increase in the involvement of advisors in the students' success? They're not going to unless we tell them. And I'm afraid there being some decisions made in isolation. Um, you know, we're not through with layoffs and 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 fur- furloughs. And I wish I could say we were, guys, but the reality of higher education, we're probably not. Um, and there are a few campuses who they've said point blank advisors are not on the table on, on, in any furloughs or layoffs because we know they've got to be there to meet these needs, not enough campuses, but I think some of that is begin because we haven't communicated. So I think we've got to think about for directors of advising, for frontline advisors, for, for VPs, for undergraduate, for everybody, how do we communicate differently about the impact of advising up the chain than we have in the past? Mm-hmm. We've all been required to send in those annual reports or those, those quarterly, but does it need to wait till quarterly? You know, do we at mid-quarter, Matt, on your campus, at your campus, at mid-quarter, does that need to be being communicated? Look how many more contacts we had. These are students we never saw before because they're not going to know that if we don't. And so I think that's the biggest piece, Column, is I just, I'm, I'm begging campuses to do a better job of communicating to the decision makers about financial issues the real value that advice is having virtually. Um, with some students who they never saw face-to-face because they just wouldn't come in. Um, I think the other piece, Matt, and column is we've got to really think about what advisors do. And I still believe we've got advisors who are doing some duties and tasks that are not advising. And we've got to figure out how to move them away from those. You can't spend time with students if you're doing a whole lot of bureaucracy or a whole lot of paperwork. So how do we make that virtual? Number one, you know, are we still using paper? Shame on you. We shouldn't be, even though I'm old and I still like paper. I'll say that. Um, but we need to also look at the, just the, is that really the advisor's job? Traditionally, I'm going to make some campus angry and y'all know I'm going to, but I don't mean to. But traditionally, on our campus, advisors have done the graduation audit to determine the final audit. Why? Isn't that a register? I'm not, I'm, I'm really making people pissed off. I'm sorry, guys. But I mean, isn't that somewhat, why is that advisors? Because if you're spending doing that for 300 of your students, Matt, look how much time you didn't have to talk to students. So we've really got to start looking at our advisors doing advising because it's been really easy to have them do a whole lot of other things. And I'm not saying we don't all do other things. We all do other duties as a sign. That's in our contract. Um, but right now, what's the most important? I think right now, the student contact is the most important. So how do we 
find different ways to do that, either technology-wise or other staff. I don't know what the answer is, but campus has got to look at that because if we don't recognize that right now it's the student contact that's the most important thing we can do, then I don't care if you have low graduation rates or student success rates. You deserve it because you didn't recognize that. And and that. So I'm sorry, I lectured. You two are looking at me like that's long enough, Charlie, shut up. But that's just a passion of mine right now. We've got to recognize that that student that student engagement is key more than ever before. Hopefully we'll carry this back when we come back to our life, that we don't forget this. But right now it really is. And if we don't do something differently and communicate differently, then we're not, you know, our, our comptroller says all the time, don't waste a good pandemic. Don't waste a good pandemic in making some changes about advising on your campuses, folks. Take advantage of this um, and use it. So sorry, Matt. Sorry, Carl. <laughs> no, <laughs> we can we can tell that you're passionate about this. And, and I would think that you have a lot of people that are listening that will agree with that. I mean, especially, you know, you bringing this up and talking about it right now. It's really something that with a lot of schools, spring registrations coming up. So you have a lot of a lot of advisors that are going to be super busy over the next like month and a half to two months. So I think a lot of people are thinking about what are my roles how many students do I have to see? What's my caseload? What other projects and other things that I need to get done that are trickling down? Do I have time for all of this? Am I needing to stay up until midnight, work on the weekends, check my email, respond to students? You know, because ultimately it does come down to the student and making sure that they're not negatively impacted. So a lot of conversations. And I think it also goes with, like you're saying, need to communicate. But then I also think a lot of us need to do a better job of documenting a lot of it too. Absolutely. You can't communicate if you don't document, but I'm not sure we've asked people to document differently. Right. Now we're still documenting caseload, but your caseload might be X, but you only saw a percentage of those in person. You may be seeing a much larger percentage of that. So your caseload has really grown, even though maybe the numbers assigned to you have it, right. because you see more of them. But the people that make the, and I'm not acting like the people out there who don't, but I mean, the folks who make decisions, they don't know that unless we document it and communicate it. You know, we can't expect people to know what good jobs we do if we don't tell them. Yep. And too many times advising does not say what we do well. And we got to do a better job of that. I'm sorry. I'm just. This is just so important to me right now as we think about the future of, of advising and higher education. Absolutely. And as we wind down on our time together for this <laughs> interview, uh, you know, we're talking about you know changing the times and you know making sure that we're thinking about the future. So with Nakata, not long long ago, um, Nakata held a virtual professional development session uh, that was actually developed by the Race, Ethnicity, and Inclusion Work Group, and they've been working like crazy. Um, and doing such a phenomenal job. And that professional development session provided um, Nakata leaders a comprehensive plan of professional development. Amazing. Yeah. It was amazing. Can you talk more about how that came about and how things went? Absolutely. As, as those who were at the conference from the awards ceremony know that that um, one of Karen Archibald's major, Karen did many, many wonderful things. But one of the things she did was was um, developed with Aaron Justino as vice president, the race, ethnicity, inclusion task force. Mm -hmm. And there were 10 people chosen, one from each region, 11, and one international. 
and then um, two chairs, Jess Staten and, and Loxy Nips. Um, and so they began working this past year. And I think one of the first things we did was recognize that under our present bylaws, and their bylaws are being looked at right now, but one of the things is that task forces are tied to presidents. Presidents change every year. So in reality, Cecilia could have said, I don't want to do that. I'll do, we know Cecilia wasn't going to do that, but she could have the way the bylaws were written. So the board, Aaron very wisely in February, got them to change the group from a task force to a work group. So they are ongoing for as long as we need them and they want to work. And they then became just charged because they recognized this is long term within it. And one of the first things they said was, there's always that leadership meeting for all leaders in the spring. We need to do a better job of professional development. Why aren't we doing that starting with our leaders with this conversation then? And I said, I don't think that's a problem at all. We took it to the council. The council agreed and they began working. I think the major point, Matt, is that was only the first of many that will occur with leaders. We didn't want it to be a one and done. And so I think what this group is really doing, Matt, which I'm so excited about, is looking across the association, where are our issues, where are our problems, understanding first and foremost, we've got to provide professional development to the folks who are leading us within that. But the other thing they're doing as well as the region review group is looking at our structures. You know, what what structures do we have in place that are automatically hindering the, the involvement of people from different backgrounds? Are them in leadership, so they're, they're really just they're looking at everything with association, and, I, and I'm I'm really excited about it. Um, the other thing they're doing so very well, which I'm so excited about, and part of that's because of Loxley and and Jess, but they're not, they're not ignoring the groups we already have. So we already have an ethnicity and inclusion committee. We already have a sustainable leadership committee. They're not ignoring those and say we're doing your work. They're partnering with them and working with them. And I think that's an important aspect as well. So uh, there's a lot of work going on. I'm just excited about it. And I think it's going to really help us look at if Dakota wants to be X in 10 years, what do we need to do differently? Whatever the X is. The board right now is looking at our, new, looking at our vision and mission statements. Do we need a new vision and mission statement? If we say we're global, if we say we're inclusive, does our vision and mission say that? So, so they're really looking at, in, in, you know, 2030, where does Nakata need to be? What we do, how, what do we need to get us there? And it can't happen overnight, I think, recognizing that. But we got to start doing the processes. So it, it's a, it's a wonderful, been a wonderful experience. And, and Aaron, uh, Karen created it, and Aaron and moving it on forward, and Cecilia's focus on it. I'm just very excited that, that we're seeing this move forward. Charlie, it's interesting because you said earlier in relation to the question, oh, you kind of wish you 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 were a politician and 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 you'd have come up with a way to to skirt it, but I think it's exactly that that you're not a politician, you're a leader, and you confront issues and you empower those around you when you recognize that they have more expertise on a topic or they're better suited to handle it, and I, I think. That's everybody in the world who has more expertise. Yeah, I'm the best one with finding everybody who's smarter than I am and getting them to do the work that needs to be done. Look at you two. <laughs> well, 
Well, it's it's not everyone in a, in a leadership position who would be willing to to hand the the ball off. You know, I mean, you're you're the quarterback, but you're willing to to hand the ball off and uh, empower others. And um, we it it I, I to the benefit of the association. And I mean, the the fact that you know, again, you you mentioned earlier, you're old, but that doesn't come across in any way, shape, or form. We see the same energy. I see the same energy from you now as I did when I first met you, and that was only three years ago but the passion that you have the fact that you're you know so on on top of the topics that are impacting on advisors now it's it's a credit to you and and we are very fortunate to have you and and the likes of Karen and Aaron and Olivia and Cecilia and so many others within Nakata and it's it's really great for the the profession and um, that that we are willing to acknowledge that there are great things happening, but also that there are problems, there are issues, and we need to tackle them. And they're they're not going to solve themselves, and they're not going to get solved if we ignore them. So um, it it's very um, you know empo- empowering to to hear that that is the work that is being undertaken at the moment, and it's not just on one issue; it's across the board. So I want to. The only way we could do it. The only way we could do it is to make that happen and and recognize it's not the board's job. It's all of our job. You know, the board is the the strategic visioning. You know, they can say where we want to be in ten years. Now, how does each how do each one of our leadership and our unit groups get us to where that vision and mission are within that? Well, thank you for taking the time to speak to myself and Matt Charlie. It is always entertaining and insightful, and we truly appreciate it. Thank you all so much for the two of you and what you've done with this podcast series. Uh, 5,000 downloads. That's amazing. I don't know if that's some record for a podcast to get that many that quickly or not. It ought to be. Um, but this is just such a, a credit to y'all's passion. And y'all's desire to make this happen. So thank you both so much as well. It's always great to see the two of you to talk with you. Matt, that was a great chat that we got to have with Charlie. And he is always entertaining. He is always engaging. And he is always insightful. Um, we're fortunate that the executive director of Nakata is so open to uh, being interviewed. And it was our second time chatting to to him on the podcast. And yet it was still so in-depth. It was still offered so much. And I, I feel that, you know, we still learned a lot in that second interview. And it sounds like there are a whole host of plans uh, in the works and there is lots to look forward to in at, to, as we move towards the end of 2020 and, and into 2021. We hope that listeners enjoyed the three interviews today. And if you are not already doing so, maybe take the opportunity to subscribe or leave us a review wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can also find us on various social media channels. So on Twitter, on Facebook and on Instagram, all of them at Advising Podcast. We do love to hear from listeners any sort of feedback you have, ideas um, that 
people that you think that we should interview for future episodes, do reach out and let us know. And we appreciate you taking the time to listen to this podcast. We know that everyone has a busy schedule and that there are a whole host of things going on for each of you. So thank you once again. And we look forward to chatting to you in a few weeks for episode 22. Don't want a complication. Complication.